0: And be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So these verses that we read earlier, they lay out our calling and purposes as Jesus' disciples. A purpose of living in such a way that others see God's glory and glorify him. It's to live, to let our light shine in such a way that people, it says, see our good deeds and praise our Father who is in heaven. You notice these verses say that we are already salt and light if we follow him. The point is not be salty or be light, but rather not to hide who he has made us, who we really are, and not to let a lack of confidence or fear uh, hide what God has done for us and is doing in us. You know, so much of our lives are so easily driven by anxiety about what others think of us, um, what we say or what we eat or how we dress or what kind of car we have or um, how we look after our lawn or our house or whether we have the latest iPhone, what what our kids do, what they've achieved. All these things so easily become something that we can feel good or bad as our neighbours look on. But Jesus' disciples are called to be a community that stands out in the middle of all of that, driven not by what others think about us or about life, but instead by the program, the values that Jesus has for us. There are two huge temptations on either side there. We could be a community that doesn't care about the world and its values at all. That's the The Amish, they they live a life that they think is is the way that that God has called them to, but they reject now everything about modern life, don't they? So that really they don't have any contact with other people. The way they live doesn't really have an impact on other people around them. On the other hand, the temptation is just to merge into the crowd, to roll with what others do and think and not to stand out at all in the hope that people will get on with us. And that is the temptation that Jesus is calling us especially to avoid here we're to be involved in the world, to spend our time around normal people. And yet at the same time, not to take on the values of our culture or our time, whatever culture or time that is. We're called to be involved in the world, to love people in the world, and at the same time to live by a completely different set of standards. And that is hard. That's a high calling. Very often the church slips from that high calling. But Jesus is calling us back to it. Now, over the last three weeks, we've looked at the Beatitudes in three sections. Firstly, we've seen that the life of a disciple is one that's aware of its need for grace in, in 1 to 6. Uh, last week in 7 to 10, we saw how that flows out, that, that grace, that undeserved kindness of God, experiencing that flows out in the way we behave to others. And then this week, 11 to 16, we see how we more actively show that grace in our lives. Um, so, so firstly, the, those uh, 11 to 12, um, you remember Jesus ended the Beatitudes with this, this strange and difficult one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted, those who have their lives made difficult, in other words, because of living in the way Jesus calls them to. That, that's, that's Righteousness. He says this is this is blessed, this is part of the good life, this is part of the flourishing life, even though in itself it can be <coughs> it can be truly hideous, <clears throat> as it was is for many of the people in the countries in the video we've just watched. It was just as hard for the disciples, of course. So Jesus goes on to explain what he means. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus is making it clear what he's talking about. He's talking about persecution on the whole spectrum. It includes people thrown out of their communities or put in prison or beaten or attacked. All the things that might happen in North Korea or Iran or even in Cuba or other countries like that. But also he's talking about the things that might happen to us. Be insulted or have something untrue or unfair, said about us, shut out or called an idiot for what you believe or told that you're weak. Christianity is only for those who need crutches. Some of you here in this room have experienced that very painfully over the years. You've been rejected by family, perhaps, or by close friends. Or they've said in an office or at work, unfair or unfair. False things against you. Just as in ancient Rome, they said Christians ate babies. Perhaps it's a little milder today. They say that we're bigots or prudes or fools. But people still say false things about Christians. Jesus says, blessed are you when that happens. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. Because in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You Now, the prophets for them were the great heroes of old times, the the, the amazing heroes of the faith. And Jesus says, you remember how they were persecuted and suffered and hated in their time. You remember how because people hated their message, they hated the prophets as well. And he says, when you are mistreated because of them, rejoice because it means that you're on the same team as those guys. You, like them, are mine and you know how I reward the people who belong to me. Jesus was being quite serious about that rejoicing, and the apostles heard it that way. So in the book of Acts, we read when the first time the apostles are flogged and mistreated, hauled in front of the court for what they're doing, for preaching about Jesus, they, they leave and they are rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, for Jesus' name. And It seems strange to them, it seems strange to all of us that anyone would ever have to suffer for doing good. But of course, that's exactly what happened to Jesus, isn't it? Goodness up to a certain point is valued and admired. But if people, if we even, are proud of our own goodness, then there is something threatening, something strange, something difficult about Jesus and his unearthly goodness. Something that makes a demand on us, that makes us aware we cannot come up to his standards, that we need to bow down to him. And that's why they killed him. And that's why... They persecute and kill those whose lives point to him. That's why Paul says, "In everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, on some level, at some time. Now, as we... It's very tempting at this point to put in a few stories of people who have suffered terribly and been very heroic in the way they've done it, whether that's amazing heroes of the early church who are you know, burned for their faith or whatever, and who, um, forgiving the people who did it to them, uh, loved them and rejoiced as, as they died horrible deaths. Or equally, you know, I, I've had the privilege of knowing people who have suffered terribly over the years, uh, people who still have scars on their bodies from the way they've been abused or tortured. The trouble is, that if I do that, is it all feels very distant for us, doesn't it? You know, we think, that's all very well for them, but, you know, a person like me, that's not really me. I I couldn't do that. And of course, the truth is, probably you couldn't, and probably I couldn't either. Because God equips us for the situations in life that we face. And none of us right now are being called to be beaten or tortured for our faith. So instead... Jesus got this. That's why he says to the disciples, when people call you names, you're like the prophets. And when they say false things, that's not a big thing. You know, that's, not a, that's not big persecution. They're saying, even when you get this little persecution, you are like the prophets, the heroes of old. There's something about you that is in common with them. Yeah, maybe you're not great like them. Maybe you're not amazing. But when you suffer for me, Even the littlest thing you are showing, you are saying with your life, Jesus is worth more to me than having an easy life. And when you're saying that, you're saying, I'm his and he is mine and he rewards those who belong to him. Now, uh, as ever with something like this, it's worth inserting a quick warning. Jesus is not saying, as we said last week, that those who are persecuted because they are rude or pushy uh, are to rejoice because of what happens to them. Uh, just this week, I, I heard about um, some, uh, a, a non-Christian invited um, several people around for a meal, um, some Christians, some non-Christians. And um, just as the food was on the table, um, one of the Christians, without asking permission, without saying anything, launched into a long five-minute grace, long, involved, complicated, without even asking permission. And understandably, the person who had to have them around for a meal was rather upset. That's just being rude. <laughs> but yeah, fortunately, in this case, uh, as we were seeing with the kids, God works all things for good. It actually turns out that their very rudeness led that person to talk to another Christian about whether that was right or wrong and why it was weird. And it led to a long conversation about what Christianity is really about. But that was the grace of God. We are not called to be rude like that. At the same time, we are called to stand out. And when we do, it has remarkable effects. So I I think of of Chris, A friend of mine who had a rather discouraged, rather depressed, occasionally drug-taking life for a number of years and came to faith and was filled with joy and purpose and new hope when he became a Christian and was immediately dropped by every single one of his regular friends. I think of a minister run out of his community because he believed that every human being needed to be rescued by Jesus because we're all Sinners, we're all, we've all done wrong and we need forgiveness. That was thought of as offensive. Or um, I think of an OT on our tea break who was asked by a colleague uh, about her faith and very gently and as politely as she could just gently explained what she believed in response to that question and came in the next day to find a warning uh, about talking on her faith because that colleague who had asked her had reported her. I think of an aunt who was tearful, showing me a letter from uh, her niece, full of vituperative hatred and accusation—accusation, uh, accusation, false accusations—because she found her, fa- her aunt's faith threatening and unpleasant. It's tempting sometimes for some of us to say, "You know, this is getting worse." You know, the, nowadays, I think people are more hostile to faith, and maybe that's true. But I look back at the ministers who older ministers who trained and encouraged me over the years, so many of them went to theological colleges to train to be ministers. And they were you know, young Christians, full of vim and enthusiasm and excitement. And when they got there, they discovered they were laughed at by the, the very teachers who they'd, they'd come to learn from because they were sticking to normal, bible believing Christianity, to the ideas of forgiveness, of Jesus' death in our place. And that was true 50 years ago, perhaps even more than it is now. Always and in every time, Christians will face rejection and contempt and name-calling at the very least, and sometimes far more. So this is coming for you and me at some point, in some way, mild, or maybe perhaps more severe for a few of us. When it does, we are to be reminded, Jesus says, reminded of that wonderful reality that we can rejoice that we are his that we have a great reward in heaven, that we have a wonderful future to look forward to. Unpleasant and even hideous as the thing may be in itself, certainly in some places. We have something wonderful to look forward to when that happens. Now, the second part of the passage follows on from that first part. Because when people are unpleasant to you about your faith, the temptation is just back down to hide, to keep quiet, to keep your faith absolutely private. Jesus responds to that by reminding us who we are and what our mission is. You are the salt of the earth. Um, And then he'll go on in a second. You are the light of the world. Um, As I said at the beginning, notice what it says. Not you could be if you try harder. Not you should be, but you are. If you are one of Jesus' disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You know, salt's pretty important stuff. We forget that, don't we? You know, For most of us, salt is something we try to avoid for our heart's health. I'm lucky my doctor told me that for my heart's health, I need extra salt. So I try and have crisps every day. But our strange modern diets have made us forget just how vital it is. You need it to stay alive. You know, if you go um, and work a hard day's work in the hot sun or go on a yeah. long uh, you know, a running race or something like that, You won't be able to quench your thirst with pure water. You'll need something with salt in it. And uh, salt is is, is absolutely crucial to life. And they knew that. And if you live before fridges, you need to preserve your food. You need to be able to make bacon or salt herring or something like that so that you've got something to eat um, in the coming weeks and months. And Jesus says, my disciples are salt for this earth. They are necessary. They're life-giving. They go, through them, I give life to the people around. Through them, I, in the same way that preserved food, salt and preserved food restrains the the decay and the corruption, my disciples should be restraining corruption and wrong in the world around as well. Jesus says, if it loses its saltiness, if that salt loses its taste, its power, its life-giving ability, how can it be made salty again? Now, uh, here, uh, sometimes people spend quite a long time wondering about what Jesus means. You know, how can salt lose its saltiness? And obviously, if you've got a chemist here, they would say, it can't. Salt is salt. Um, People sometimes wonder, you know, Dead Sea salt, the kind of salt they used in Palestine, uh, was fairly impure. It was more like the stuff we chuck on our roads. I came back from a bike ride the other day, covered in the remains of that salt after a thaw, slimy brown stuff. It wasn't salt. It's what's left when the salt was washed out. Maybe Jesus is talking about something like that. But the main point isn't about how salt loses its saltiness, but the opposite. Um, If salt doesn't have saltiness, what do you do with it? If your steak doesn't have enough flavor, you can put salt in it. If your salt doesn't have enough flavor, then you go back to Aldi with a receipt to ask for some more. He's saying... If following Jesus doesn't make you stand out in a life-giving way, then there's nowhere else you can turn to change that. And Jesus here is using quite frightening words. He's telling us, look, there are times when you may wish to hide what you are, times when you may wish to seem less different from your friends and go with the flow. But if you are really his, that won't work. You are meant to be different. And that difference is, is the key to how he works through us in the world. And if, on the other hand, we never stick out, if we're never different, if there's nothing special about us at all, we may struggle to see that ourselves. But if it's true that there is nothing about us refreshing or life-giving, then we have to ask, are we his disciples at all? Or should we come back to him for the basics, to come to him as Christians for the first time? When Jesus says, that we're the light of the world. He's saying the same thing. The world is dark. It needs the light of God. It needs to know God in the same way that when you turn, get up at night and it's dark and you stub the toe or you fall over that step that you always forget about. You need light to see what's around you. And he's saying people need light to see the reality of the world, to see the reality of God and eternity and of, you know, of Jesus himself. And of course, Jesus uses those very words to describe himself, doesn't he? He says, he is the light of the world. But amazingly, he says, you too, in a little way, you reflect that light into the world as well. Again, he's not saying here, shine brighter, guys. He's saying, if you're really my disciple, you're shining. And just like a, a city on a hill can't be hidden, it doesn't, doesn't matter if it wants to play hide and seek. You can't really get rid of it, however shy you are as a city. You know, it's, it's just not possible to hide. If you are Jesus' disciple, then people are going to notice. And so he says, you know, remember, you're light for a reason. You don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. When someone lit a little oil lamp in those days, they put it in its stand, and it fills that little one-roomed house with light. Light is meant to shine. So he says, let your light shine before men. Don't run and hide. You are light and you are there for a reason. God has put you in your place in life so that you can shine light into that place. And he finishes with that critical verse which really sums up the whole of this passage. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It'll all point to him People will see the good you do as a disciple and while some of them will persecute you, some of them will praise God because of it. Some of them will see his goodness, they'll wonder at it and perhaps some of them will come to know him through you or through others because they've seen you. Now obviously Jesus isn't talking about how we should show off or talk about how great we are. Um, If you look over to the start of chapter 6 in the Bibles. He's going to say quite a lot about that in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to slam the kind of hypocrisy that aims for publicity when you do good. Uh, You know, when you give to charity or pray, you want to be seen to do it. Christians don't need to put up plaques to remind people of their generosity. But we do let our lights shine. where there is good to be done, we do it. Where there's truth that needs to be spoken, we speak it, we talk of Jesus, we act with kindness, and we are willing to take risks and to suffer penalties for standing up for what is right. When we do that, we shine. And some people will hate it, and some people will be drawn to our Father. And God really does work this way. Um, I think of one guy I know who, when, when he was a depressed teenager, he regularly went to a shop that was local near his house and um, the guy in the shop who owned the shop the shopkeeper was warm and accepting and gracious to him in a way that nobody else he knew was and bit by bit, he ended up spending more and more time in the shop until he ended up basically helping out there a sort of extra employee and in the end Through a combination of his questions and the man's wanting to talk about Jesus, he, became, he himself uh, ended up studying the Bible and becoming a Christian. Uh, I think again of a man I knew who um, just met an old friend at, the par- at a party, and he was so amazed by the change in that friend. He was like, Where is all the hatred and anger you used to have gone? There's something different about you. You are not the man you used to be. What's different? I'm a Christian. And he himself, in the end, became a Christian through that. Or a lady I bumped into last week. Um, she's going to work normally for years. People know work know she's a Christian. Um, and for years, one of her colleagues didn't, couldn't care less about Christianity. And the, the events of the last two years have shaken that colleague a little, though like a lot of people going through um, the lockdown and COVID and all the different events since then. And they, they would begin to think, there's, some, there's something more to life than I'm getting. Uh, what is it? Um, and they came to my friend uh, and said, you know, you, you get something about this. Tell me about Jesus. I want to, uh, I've got lots of questions. Can you answer them? And my friend, um, who's used to having to speak a little bit more effort than that, usually to get people to talk, be willing to hear about Christianity, was delighted. But this works. You know, God works through us, through the different... You know, we don't feel different most of the time if we're Christian disciples. But if we are real disciples, we are. And if we are willing to stand out a little, he will work through us. So back to the beginning, we are so often worried, aren't we, about what people think of us. But if we are disciples... We have been made salt, we've been made light. We don't need to worry about what the world says about us because Jesus is saying about us that we are his, that we have an amazing reward ahead of us. And so he calls us to be what we are, not to back down or hide it, but to face the world with honesty and love, without fear or timidity, not to hide ourselves anymore because this is what we actually are. And when we are what we are, He is who he is and he works through us. Let's pray. Lord, we don't feel like salt or light. We don't feel like we can change the world and the reality is we can't, but at least not much or in profound ways. But you can do amazing things through us. And we pray that you would increase our confidence that you will do this. That we will be aware that you are sending us out, each to our families, homes, workplaces, groups of friends, to be salt and light in those places. Help us to bring the flavor of Christ your goodness, that beauty of who you are into the places we go. Help us to shine the light of truth and reality into them. Help us to do it with the utmost humbleness and gentleness, not with pride or in a pushy or arrogant way. But as people who know that you have been kind to us when we did not deserve it. Gently and graciously and wisely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.